Children's Church, if uh, you are between the ages of what I believe is five, four, five to ten, you can uh, follow Miss Jody out over to the fellowship hall. You can also be turning to Luke chapter one, verses twenty-six through thirty-eight. Verses 26 through 38. As you've made your way there, let's pause and pray. <clears throat> Our Father God, we turn to you undeserving, yet full of your grace. Um, by the arrival of your Son as a gift for sinners. So let us listen in light of the gospel. Let us grow as you've so ordained. Let us um, hear from you. And Lord, let us be cleansed from all unrighteousness. As you are gracious and merciful to forgive us our sins, Lord, cleanse his people. Cleanse our hearts of wicked things, our mind of wicked things. Let your glory and your goodness be so much more valuable to us, so much more joyful, bring us so much more pleasure than anything that, that we don't want anything else. Lord, we also ask that these things that we have seen time and time again wouldn't simply just be an ordinary story to us, but that they would enliven us and renew our zeal, that they would refresh us in the gospel, that they would pull us deeper in uh, to Christ-likeness and worship as we just peer a little bit into your majesty and your amazing grace. Let it be for us now. In Jesus' name, amen. It's hard to imagine as a Jew in the first century a greater birth announcement than the one that Zechariah was given about John. Number one, the setting and the breaking of the silence after that 400 years. And then number two, who that child would be and the prophecy that that child would fulfill, that there would be a, a fulfillment of time that was coming forth now at the birth of this unlikely child that would be utterly mind-blowing and especially for a priestly family to know that the prophet of the Most High is coming into their home as their son would just simply be overwhelming. But yet there is a greater birth to come and it is prophesied. But is it as expected and looked forward to as the birth of John? And you'll see that the way that it comes to young Mary, it's very unconventional for her to get this news, which makes her response that much more extraordinary. And, and we're told twice about Mary that she sees things, hears things about Jesus, and then 
hides them away in her heart or ponders them in her heart. Or That's another way of saying she's perplexed and confused by these things that she has been told and these things that she'll eventually see. And she's trying to reason them out while not quite understanding how it all works. Now, we can, and certainly they could, discern from the Scriptures that the Messiah is coming. His arrival on earth with men to bring the salvation of God is imminent, but they have no clue how God is going to put everything together to fulfill that. Or when. But we're looking here first at the foretelling. What Gabriel's going to say. And then we're going to look at how he describes this child. And then we're going to look at Mary's response. But look with me at the first three verses here in Luke 1, 26 through 28. In the sixth month, that is of Elizabeth's pregnancy, because we just ended with that five months of her keeping herself hidden. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, if you would stop and meditate on Scripture with me, we're going to notice that there's a lot packed into just that introduction. That introductory scene, that introductory words. So we want to notice some things about Gabriel's announcement of the Immaculate Conception. The couple, we're told, is Mary and Joseph, and they're betrothed. The Lord had chosen these very two people that He wanted to be involved with stewarding the most precious gift given to men. And who are they? Well, they're young, and Mary probably more so than Joseph, unwed, even though a betrothal cannot be uh, broken except with a certificate of divorce. They're still unwed. They're not experienced parents. But what do they have? They seem to both, from the birth narrative in Matthew and Luke, have these pure and devout heart for the Lord. They respond to His word and His promise as true disciples, true servants, those who are truly submissive to His word. They're most willing to serve as commanded, even with understanding the difficulties involved. Okay, because automatically those things are going to start swirling in your mind. If you're Mary, if you're Joseph, and we know that Joseph was certainly thinking about these things, but what's that going to look like when Mary becomes pregnant and they haven't consummated their betrothal? doesn't look great. And she's young. She hasn't lived a lot of life. The punishment for what she could be accused of is to be stoned, to be killed. And Joseph could have egg on his face and be severely embarrassed. He had um, had this betrothal to this young girl, and, and now it's all blown up. 
But yet, when they get a word from the Lord in regards to these things that seem so confusing and seem so unconventional, their response is always to submit and to serve, even though it seems like a detriment to their well-being. I would even argue that if you go back to Genesis and, and look at the, the, the faith of Abraham throughout his journey, you see Abraham stumble in smaller things than these two do, even at their age. It's, it, it, so it's not that God has uh, chosen the wrong people. It's that God was very careful to chose those who had a heart for Him. That's what He's looking for. Wasn't that our first fighter, fighter verse of the year? The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth. To seek those hearts that are blameless toward Him, that love Him this way. So all of the, if you, if you put them down on paper, uh, they're not the candidates to shepherd, to uh, steward the gift of the baby Jesus into adulthood. But what we're told time and time again throughout the scriptures is that God looks at the heart. That's what He wants. He can equip them. He can provide for them. He can help them, as surely He will, to get Jesus to where He needs to go. But these are two people who are devoted purely to the Lord. Also, you have some elements here in these first three verses which are interesting in light of prophecy, right? We're told Mary's a virgin. That's a prophecy that the virgin will give birth, Isaiah 7. Uh, there's prophecy that he'll be a Nazarene or that he'll be... Uh, actually, that's another way of saying that he'll be kind of hated among men. Um, and he'll be at the house of David. That's a huge one, right? The Messiah is coming in the line of David. They all know that. So this is all. What we just see here in these first three introductory verses of this uh, foretelling of the birth of Christ, it's all in keeping with the promises of God. And he can at one time tell us the details, right? You, you, you have the details of the birth in the Old Testament. He can tell us that, but yet still leave us perplexed as to how all those details will come together. In other words, we can't, we, we, we can't figure this out until He does it. And then we can, in hindsight, look back and say, oh, that, 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 and that. The logistics of all this are not able to be logically reasoned out by men. The author can foreshadow what is going to happen but we as the reader cannot write the story that we are reading. We're, we're not dealing with a storyline, though, okay? This is human history. It's not that God is just altering things on a paper to get the characters and their situations to all line up to the arc of the story. That's, that's not what, this, is, this is actual human history. All the people and places and events are lining up in the most perfect way to reveal the fulfilling of the promises of God. Human 
beings like us are not capable of shaping history in accordance with our desires. Only God can sovereignly rule in that way. We may be responsible for the acts we commit in history, but it still remains His story. I cannot take you into the mind of God to understand how He does this while humans are still able to function with responsibility for those functions. This is a tension that we cannot understand. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. If you want to say it in a simpler way, He's God. Isn't that the most comforting thing? You know what I find? I'm going on a rabbit trail here for a minute. You know what I find with all the other uh, systems of faith or religion in the world? Is they have all set themselves up around uh, their ability to understand God in human terms. We don't do that in Christianity because the Bible doesn't do that. We have enough revealed to us, but we will never, ever get to the depths of His understanding in His person. He will remain eternally God. And we will remain eternally His created children, Lord willing, but not having God-like understanding of who He is. We're not Him. We can't put ourselves in His shoes to be him now what does gabriel say to her first off he calls her favored one which means or which is defined as as being or becoming the beneficent of god's freely bestowed goodwill so it's a word she would have understand that for some reason God had decided to bestow on her His goodwill for His good purposes, and that's it. And so, what's her response in verse 29? She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She's perplexed. She's confused. Why is an angel here telling me that God's grace is upon me? What's about to happen? What's... What's this all about? And these are her emotions, right? She just can't make sense of this scene. Even though it's a good greeting, if if you're going to see an angel and he calls you favored one, that's a good start, okay? But why? Like, what am I seeing this angel for? Gabriel's response in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. It's always interesting that these angels have to tell people to not be afraid. Which, if you uh, listen to a devotion from Sinclair Ferguson every week, you'll hear that he spent time with angels and trying to discern from the Bible what these heavenly beings are like and what what types of heavenly beings there are and 
how they come to us in the scriptures and what people's responses are, and they're always to kind of be afraid. So they're, they're majestic. They, they, they come from the presence of the glory of God. They're sent from that majestic throne. And he's announcing to her as this type of being that, look, you, you found favor, or in other words, grace has come to you. Grace has arrived to be placed upon you from God. And Gabriel's announcing this to her. And he tells her not to be afraid because why? Well, perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4, 17 through 18, By this love is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And what Gabriel is immediately telling Mary is, look, grace is upon you. There is no need to fear. It means that God has chosen to be gracious to you and to set these things upon you. He chose you for something, Mary. She doesn't know what for yet, but he's about to tell her. And notice that she fears, like all of us would, a heavenly being that's full of glory. You think you and I would just be utterly amazed and like uh, enjoying it like a, like a magnificent Christmas tree, this angel. But no, I, I think we would be in fear because we'd recognize this, this being comes from the presence of a holy God. And we, like her, recognize our unworthiness. You know, when kind of the aroma of his glory um, infiltrates the human realm, it, it causes fear. It stirs things up because we, are, uh, we live in such contrast with that, right? It's why the very presence of Jesus amongst uh, the demon-possessed people just sends them into a frenzy. Number one, because demons are afraid of Jesus. And number two, because you have the presence of glory, which those demons aren't able to exist in. It's a death penalty for them. And for all that which is imperfect before a holy God. So, she naturally, like us, fears when she sees one of those ambassadors from His glory come to us. But, the announcement of grace upon her, cast out that fear by removing that uh, fear of, of punishment that she's due and that we are due. So now he's, he's trying to put her at ease to listen to what's next. Okay, Move that aside. Now let's talk about Jesus. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So not only does Mary have the, uh, the uh, uh, quickest um, gender reveal in history, but she's also got the name to go with it, which is significant, right? I mean, it's a fairly common name in the ancient world, but it's important because of the context. If the angels tell me that a 
that a baby's coming and then tells me his name, that means God named him. So God had a very specific reason for giving him this name. And this name means God saves. Matthew 1.21, the angel tells Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That's who he is. That's what he's doing. He'll not, it doesn't say he'll save his people from their Roman oppressors. It says he'll save his people from their sins. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Wow. That was a lot to take in for her. To be great in this context means that he'll be remarkably out of the ordinary in degree, magnitude, and effect. He didn't appear that way. He didn't appear to be that child. He didn't have golden diapers. He, didn't, he, he comes in this humble scene. He's raised in this humble family. He kind of walks about in this humble, humble way. And then, wow. He even dies this disgraceful death. And the world has never been the same, nor will it. So great is, is a lot bigger than you and I think it is. Son of the Most High. This is a common name for God in the Old Testament. You, you see it all the way back with Abraham. You, you see it with David in the Psalms. You see Daniel uh, always referred to God as uh, the Most High. And so whereas John is a prophet of the Most High, Jesus is the actual Son of the Most High. So you have that great birth announcement for John, but this is about being a son of the actual Most High. And therefore, God's going to give him something that you would give your son, an inheritance or a succession to the throne. And he gives him the throne of his father, David. And this is in fulfilling a word from 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13 and 16. When your days are fulfilled, the Lord says to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, you may read that and think, well, yeah, right? Solomon builds the temple, you know, David's son. But verse, verse 13 is looking to an eternal kingdom. We're not looking towards a, a temple and a throne that's just going to stand for a couple hundred years or even a thousand years. We're, we're looking for an eternal kingdom here and a, a, and a reign of an eternal king on that throne of that kingdom. That's, that's what's prophesied in 2 Samuel. And then in verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The key word there in those verses is what? Forever. Eternal. The everlasting kingdom is His kingdom. 
In Daniel 2.44, the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Daniel 7.14, and to him who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The scriptures are always looking forward to an eternal reign of this king that God is placing at the head and at the throne of his kingdom. So you've got to be kicking yourself if you know these scriptures and you're awaiting a Messiah and because he doesn't remove you from under Roman oppression, you think he's not the guy. That's really short-sighted. Because the Bible's always pointing us to something greater, something eternal, something everlasting. And aren't you glad? Because even the great things that we have in this life or enjoy in this life or that we see in this life, even the long reigns of monarchs and kings and queens or countries have an end. Everything in this world has an end, unfortunately. But the hope of heaven and the hope of God's kingdom and the hope of this baby who we're looking forward to coming is, is an eternal hope. It's an everlasting hope. This is, this is that God-sized pleasure that I'm always talking about. And when we settle for the pleasures of this world, we're revealing the, the death in our flesh that doesn't feed on or hope in living things, but just eats dead things. We want more. And then fast forward to Hebrews 1.8, we see described of Jesus, but the Son of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then when you get to the revelation, you see this come to fruition. Revelation eleven fifteen. the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Like, I don't expect us to understand what eternity is. You know, we think in time. You know, it, it's even hard for us to picture, uh, you know, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, 500 years, certainly 1,000 years. But, but think in terms of there being not a number attached to the future. It's mind-blowing. And, and you wonder, like, what, what do we do forever? You know? Because <laughs> everything that we do has, like, a time stamp on it. And again, I'll bring you back to what I said in the beginning. God's, God is un, unsearchable in the depths and the riches of His wisdom and His glory. It will be forever as we continue to know Him and see Him. So, 
you, you have to get past the human mind that is enslaved to time and think of a, a glory without end. Think of, the way I describe it to the boys is think of like the best day or, or moment you've ever had and then don't put an end to it. Multiply that by infinity and maybe we'll get to an understanding of what this is. But we're, we're, we're looking for something that lasts. So what's the response here? She just has all this crazy news. And then verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, Zechariah was disciplined by Gabriel for his response. But Zechariah, before he responded, was given the detail and <laughs> given the explanation of what the sign is, like an actual pregnancy, Zechariah, from your wife. Okay, which shouldn't happen at that point in their life. So he was told exactly how John would arrive. Mary's circumstance is significantly different. She's not been told in detail yet. Um, she's still a virgin. She's, she's actually looking for commands here. And some people even believe that she, at this point she understands that she's going to conceive in a supernatural way. So she's just looking to like, okay, well, I'm here. How does this work? Okay. Well, he's going to tell her. Verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. Wow. So, if she was thinking of this supernatural conception, she's obviously right. She's going to remain a virgin and conceive by the Holy Spirit. And why is that so? Because He is the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of God. Deity is coming to humanity. His origins are heavenly. He is uncreated, but he takes on flesh as we do. And you have in this conception what theologians call the hypostatic union. That was the first theological term I ever learned, and so I'm using it today. But, but all it means is that uh, the subsistence or, or what concretely makes up a person is is what they are in the in the physical right and so here in jesus you have a union of what makes him who he is of divinity and humanity and and when those two things meet you have jesus christ the lord he he does not inherit the sinful nature of adam understand that he is of the holy spirit but he is taking on flesh. So he is like us in every way except for that. His Father is God. And in fact, 
John tells us that Jesus is God. So I'll give you a quote next week from Augustine, but basically he, he, he is coming through his creation. He created the hands, he created the womb, he created Mary, and then he enters into the world with flesh through what he himself created. Hebrews 4.15 um, describes him this way in his humanity. For we do not have a high priest we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We inherit sinful, nat or, uh, sinful nature through Adam. Jesus doesn't have Adam as his father. It's God as his father. But he's human. So he can experience temptations. But he is not ruled by those temptations. He is not won by those temptations, conquered by those temptations. It has no power over him like it does have power over us from our very birth. It doesn't have that upon him. But he has flesh, so he understands what it is to live in flesh and to represent all humanity as the second Adam. In other words, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, understand that, he didn't taste sin, period. And then on the cross, God makes him the result or the, the, the lamb for sin. Or it's all on him now. Where it's never touched him, now it's on him. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's really difficult for us who have one nature to understand Jesus as the God-man. And it's certainly worth it, as Hebrews does throughout, to investigate the glory of that. But to understand it or to um, imagine what that would be like is impossible. The, the most glorious part of, of Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling among us is that God comes to His people to save them. And we never expect Him to stand in the seat of punishment while at the same time He's passing down the judgment. But because he took on flesh, he can do that. Because he has both natures, he can do both things. So you have Romans 3.26, that at the cross he's become the just and the justifier. That the judge sits in the seat, the judgment seat, and then that judge at the same time receives the judgment. It's remarkable. This is what it, what it is to be the God-man. And this is how he gets here. So he, he understands all the way from, from um, birth to manhood. He understands us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, yet he's without sin. But we're not. 
So he becomes that representative that brings righteousness to men who aren't righteous because he, as a man, was righteous. Hard for us to imagine. Gabriel gives her further evidences for these amazing things he's told her. He says, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary knows this by faith. And surely she might be thinking of a time in the scriptures where another birth, birth announcement was made to someone in which it seemed impossible for that to happen. So she knows this isn't out of the ordinary for God to do. It's impossible to happen with men, but if God declares it, it should happen. So in Genesis 18, verses 10 through 14, you remember the, the birth announcement to Sarah. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. I would think that Mary understands that. I would think by her response in verse 38 that she remembers Sarah. And at her young age, I would also venture to guess that she takes the word of God seriously even no matter how impossible it sounds. Because she says, verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary says that she is a slave of the Lord, submissive to His will and His way, or here, to His word and promise a true disciple. She doesn't question uh, the impossibility or laugh at the impossibility of this. She just says, I'm here. She knows what could follow, right? She knows what men, how men will respond to this. But her faith is in the God of Abraham, Mary, also righteous by faith, having grace bestowed on her as God freely chose to do so. And so she is not only willing, but that word submissive to His word. That is, that, that is a characteristic of a disciple that we are to learn from Mary. His announcements his promises, His declarations, His commands in the Scriptures are for us to be submissive to. He's Lord. And when it seems impossible for us to submit to the Word, remember things like this. 
that it's not that we're so awesome and obedient that God will do great things. It's just that He has shown us by His grace enough of His goodness and His power and has directed our hearts and our thoughts toward Him in such a way that when He says something and when we can't perceive how that will work out or how that makes sense or how that would be a good thing to do, we still do it. Because God reigns sovereignly supreme to move all people and places and things and events into an order by the counsel of His will to accomplish that will. And I don't know how all the details of all the things that happen are going to work out for good like He says, but He says they will work out for good. He said it. And again, I read things every week and I'm like, well, hope I don't have to do that anytime soon or obey that anytime soon. And then it comes about. And your faith is tested when you have to ask the question, do I trust, even though I can't see, that obeying His command will be good? You have to answer that. I can't answer that for you. And Mary says yes. And we see what happens, right? I mean, everything. Everything we needed happens. Everything good happens. You know, Mary's watching Jesus' life. She knows things that we didn't know. Saw things that we didn't see. Heard things that we don't get to hear. And, and this all ends at a cross? You know, she, her, her obedience uh, to God wasn't just rewarded here in this time. She's just like you and me. That that cross did something for His people. And that resurrection promises us something. And that spirit within us gives us a hope for something. And so she, she continues on even after Jesus leaves like the rest of his disciples. In faithful hope to what her Lord has promised her. And has promised us. And all of that hope has to be placed in this sovereign God so that this Christmas as we look back at the coming of Jesus that time as a baby, right? To become that man who would down that cross for his fellow, his people. Are we going to be able to maintain a hope in that God for the second time around? Has he, has he done enough to carry us through this life to the eternal hope that he's given us in Jesus? And I hope you can answer that in the affirmative every day 
It's not just today, but it's tomorrow if it should come. It's the next day if it should come. It's the next 20 years if it should come. But His Spirit's been given to us to remind us what He said, and that's important because He's made promises. And that's important because He fulfills His promises. And that's important because we so easily forget. So His Spirit living within you, His presence, is what will carry you through to the end, hoping in this sovereign God to accomplish all that He's promised, even as impossible as it may seem. Pray you'd respond to Him now and then we'll stand and sing.